with you this morning. If you uh, have your Bibles, we're going to be opening up to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 22. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 36. John chapter 3, starting in verse 22, this is right after Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. It says, After these things came Jesus and His disciples into the land of Judea, and there He tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Aenon near to Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond the Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthy and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard that he testifieth and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things unto His hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And so we come to this portion in John. It's a, There's a lot going on in this passage, although I do think it's unified by one, one thread that that goes through from verses 22 to 36. If we're thinking about chronologically, this really is the last word, um, the last endorsement that we find of, uh, of, of John the Baptist, the last word of his ministry that we have. As we've gone through this so far, of course we're only three chapters in, by the time we get finished today we'll be starting chapter 4, but we've tried to go back and tie together what John is saying and unpacking with what he starts out with in the prologue, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And when we were there, we, we made the statement and have tried to continue to confirm that statement that what John gives us in those first 18 verses is just a miniature of the whole gospel. He's going to take the rest of the time to unpack what he starts there. It's almost like his table of contents. And so you can easily see this in the passage we're in this morning. You can think about John chapter 1, starting in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. 
He was not that lie, but he was sent to bear witness of that lie. And John the Baptist surely does that in the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. Jump down to verse 15 of chapter 1. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So again, we see that theme going through this passage that we're looking at here in John 3. This is John the Baptist bearing one final witness to who Christ is and His superiority. As we look at the passage, though, we have to organize it somehow. And so the way that I would like to organize it this morning is to think about and take really the example of John here. I think as as the passage lays out uh, the priorities of a faithful disciple. Okay? The priorities of a faithful disciple. We're talking about priorities plural. We're going to look at three, but really those three come from one, and that is John the Baptist's priority here in verse 30 of chapter 3 when John so famously says, he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. If you want to know what the Christian walk looks like in a nutshell, that's it. Last time we were we uh, were looking at John a couple of weeks ago, we talked about just the simplicity of faith. The simplicity of faith. And we could almost call this message this morning the simplicity of discipleship or the simplicity of the Christian walk. Because again, everything that the New Testament would unpack for the Christian life would fit into this one phrase. That is, he must increase and I must decrease. Whether this is day one of your walk with Christ or whether it's year 50, that's your priority. That's my priority. And we're going to see how John does this. We're going to see how the text lays it out for us as we try to understand what's here. So the first section of the text is verses 22 through 26. Verses 22 through 26. And when we're thinking about priorities plural, one of the first priorities that we're going to have to implement and we're going to have to be active, intentionally active in, in our life is fighting pride and selfish ambition. Fighting pride and selfish ambition. We see this here. It's a really a, a unique temptation uh, from the circumstantial standpoint. Look in verse 22. After Jesus leaves Nicodemus, after these things, Jesus and His disciples, uh, they went into the land of Judea and they tarried there and they baptized. And then John was baptizing and Aenon and because there was much water there. And really what we find in this section is uh, what we could, you know, tongue-in-cheek call the, the battle of the baptisms. You have Jesus and His disciples baptizing. And then you have John and His disciples baptizing. And then, believe it or not, even this early, there was jealousy. Okay, And the jealousy comes up in a in a in a way that is not entirely unpredictable if we're trying to think the way an Old Testament Jew would have thought. But it is funny the way the, the way the thought process works. So Jesus and his disciples are baptized. In John chapter 4, 1 and 2, we'll, we'll get there next week, but 
but it tells us that Jesus himself, he wasn't baptizing anybody. Uh, his disciples were the ones doing the baptizing. Um, and then John the Baptist and his disciples were baptizing in Aenon. The word Aenon there just means the place of the springs. So whenever it says there was much water there, um, maybe that means there was much water from the standpoint of maybe the springs there were were deep. I don't know, but the much water refers to there were many waters, many springs in that area. Now, I know sometimes people have come here and they use this as a proof text to prove that baptism is immersion, but you don't need that for baptism to be immersion because the word for baptism is immersion. So um, many springs doesn't nullify the fact that baptism requires immersion. Uh, and whenever you think geographically about what he's saying here, he's saying they were in this place where there were much waters because they were there and they were baptizing a lot while they were there. They had plenty of opportunities. But then they, there arose a question. There arose a question. And it's important that we understand what this question is or we can take this text and do all kinds of wild things with it. There arose a question um, about purity, purifying. We're thinking now about ceremonial law about what the Jews would have understood to be, what does it mean to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean? You'll remember in John 2 when we were seeing Jesus turn the water into wine, you remember that those water pots were set up for a ceremonial cleansing. Uh, one, of the, one of the big um, um, emphases that we tried to put in the message is that often overlooked thing that what Jesus was saying is that these water pots, the ceremonial washing that you use these water pots for, they are unnecessary. The one who will bring true cleansing is here. And so this is really a furtherance of that discussion. We're told in verse 25 that there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. So we don't know what the question was. But we know this, we can deduce from the passage that the, the question was about purification and its relation to baptism. Okay, Jewish purification, that is the, 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 the priest before they were ready for service, they had to do some ceremonial washing. If you were going to be a good Jew and you were going to be clean, there was ceremonial washings that went along with that. You'll remember whenever Jesus criticizes the Pharisees, he talks about the different ways that they purify their pots and their pans and their washings of this and that. And so this is what this question is all about. Well, when we think about what's happening here from a New Testament lens, again, purity, purifying as it relates to baptism it really is a question of ignorance. That's what we find here. Because Peter tells us in just clear words, 1 Peter 3.21, that baptism does nothing to wash the filth of the flesh. Okay, baptism is not about purity. It's not about somehow presenting you ceremonial, ceremonially clean. It's the answer of a good conscience. And so this is a question I think that 
would fall in the category of what Titus gives us, and uh, we find this in uh, uh, we find Paul exhorting Timothy in this same area. But in Titus chapter three, uh, verse nine, Paul exhorts Titus: Avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. So the question comes up, the argument comes up. Now we're having to take a guess here, but we're pretty close as far as the way the text goes. Um, Whose baptism provides more purity? John's baptism or Jesus and his disciples baptism? Which one's more pure? And what Paul would say is, that's a stupid question. You need to move on. Okay, That's what Paul says. But the bigger point of the passage is not the question that's being asked. It's, it's John's disciples' uh, response to that question, what they decide to do with that question. So again, you have Jesus and his disciples in Judea. They're baptizing a lot of people. You have John and his disciples, and they're in this place of many springs. They're baptizing. But then whenever the Jews ask this question, perhaps John's disciples didn't really know how to answer it, but they could figure something out. And what they could figure out was that Jesus and his disciples were beginning to baptize more people than John and his disciples. And so um, in verse 26, it says, they came unto John. Who came unto John? Well, John's disciples. So John had a big following. You'll remember in Mark, it said everyone was coming out to John. Whenever John was preaching repentance, they were coming out to hear John. John was baptizing lots of people. And so his disciples come back to him, verse 26, and they said unto him, Rabbi or teacher... He that was with thee beyond the Jordan, that would be Jesus, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Well, what's the question? The question is, why are more people going to Jesus to be baptized than you? Why is it that more people, why is it that Jesus is growing in popularity and you seem to be fading? Well, that's a dangerous question to somebody who's in ministry. Why are they baptizing more people down the road than you are? Why is that church growing and we aren't? Why does this individual's ministry seem to be prospering while yours seems to be stagnant or even declining? Now, these kinds of questions go a lot further than the state of the church or the ministry. They, they, they go to your life and my life in, in a personal way as well. Why, why is it that other people seem to be blessed in certain ways that we don't? Why is it that other people's giftings seem to be used in ways that ours don't? And we could go on and on and on and on. Well, the point here, especially as we take the broader point and we see the way John the Baptist responds to this is that if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we'll take the ministry and the areas of service that the Lord has placed us in 
And we will shrink the kingdom of God all the way down to us. It'll be about me. It'll be about what I'm doing and how much I'm being appreciated and how fruitful my ministry is or 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 how fruitful my service is. And again, I'm not just talking about a pulpit ministry here. If we're not careful, we will lose sight of the fact that we have been called into the kingdom of another. That this church exists within the kingdom of another. That your personal place in this church and in this kingdom is far bigger. Uh, well, maybe I should say it this way. I'm saying it the opposite. It's far smaller, although it's necessary. It's far, far smaller. It's not meant to be in the spotlight. We see something in John that is rare, something that we all need a good dose of. And that is we find a, a man who is um, who has an accurate vision of what it is that God has called him to. And he's content with that. Look at John's response. Um, just right off the bat, they came to John they said, look, all men are going to him to be baptized. And John said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. And we're going to unpack the rest of this in a minute. But John knew what his ministry was. John was a very gifted man. John had a very special role. Um, his ministry was to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 1, uh, 1 through 7 is a pretty good synopsis of that. He was the one who was to, to prepare the way. He was the one who was to remove, or at least to charge the people to remove all the hindrances because the day of the Lord was at hand. He was preaching repentance and so forth and so on. But in John chapter 3, John finds himself in a very awkward position because his followers, his disciples, he finds out, are in competition with the very one that John came to pave the way for. Right? Why is this man doing all the baptizing? You know, the problem here. This can happen with all of us, and we're all tempted to do this in some ways. It doesn't have to be, again, pulpit ministry. It, it can be the way you relate and think about your role in your family, as a spouse, as a parent, maybe your place in the church, as again, as a behind-the-scenes, non-official role kind of a thing as far as leadership goes. It can be with your place in the, your role in the workplace. It can be in any of these kinds of things where pride and selfish ambition end up convincing you that you ought to be center stage. Now, none of us would say, Jesus needs to take a back seat to me. Okay? You wouldn't stand up and say that. You're smarter than that sometimes anyway. In our hearts, we say that a good bit. Every time it's not fair, that's what we're saying. Every time, every time we get uh, down in the dumps because things aren't going the way we think they ought to be going, 
That's what we're saying. And we're going to see here in a minute that God's sovereignty is involved in all of this as far as how we ought to be thinking. Um, It's very easy for us through our own pride and our own selfish ambition to put ourselves in a position that is competing with Christ. For instance, this is a these are easy ones right here. Um, we could get hyper focused on numbers in the church. Right? We just need more. We need more. We need more. We need more. It should be bigger. It should be bigger. It should be bigger. Now, I'm not saying. Well, well, let's go with that for a minute, and I'll tell you what I'm not saying. And, and, and the more we get focused on that, we got to bring more people in and we need more people here at this place. And it's just not happening. And it's just not happening. And it's just not happening. And from a pastoral standpoint, I could get focused on, I want to be the best possible pastor preacher that I can be because I want people here. And I want people to recognize that I'm the best pastor slash preacher that I can be, which is a humble way of saying I'm better than all the other ones they know, right? And when that doesn't happen, and I began to grow discouraged and disillusioned with where God has me and what it is that God's providing, then I easily find myself in competition with Christ. My pride, my selfish ambition. I was created for more. The gifting I have is for so much more. And you'll have to personalize this for yourself. But here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying when we're thinking about numbers that we shouldn't evangelize. But the question is, do we evangelize because we want people to be impressed with our numbers? Or do we evangelize because that's what Christ has called us to do? Do we disciple or do we try to be faithful in our own niche because we want people to see that and we want to make a name for ourselves? Or do we do that because that's what Christ has called us to do? Now, we could do this uh, and talk about this and the common, I mean, it's, it's, this goes across the board, the common, a common reason for discouragement is a lack of affirmation, you know, a lack of encouragement, um, uh, a lack of, of, of praise. So whether we're talking about being a pastor, whether we're talking about being a parent, whether we're talking about being a spouse, whether we're talking about being a child, whether we're talking about being in the workforce. You know, there have been some studies done where um, uh, it's more impactful for millennials to receive praise than a raise. You know, verbal praise. I don't understand that. Uh, but it's true. It's true. Now, when I say I don't understand that, that's just kind of tongue in cheek because I do understand what it means to have a, a self-centered heart that is so focused on me that I just cannot understand how you're not standing in awe. You know, you do the same thing. It's fighting this pride, this selfish ambition, this, this temptation to build our own kingdoms. And when we get so focused on our own kingdoms rather than 
than the kingdom of Christ and service to Christ, then we'll be more focused on the results than the process. And this is what I mean. We ought to evangelize, going back to my example, we ought to evangelize because evangelizing glorifies Christ. And it's one of the ways that Christ builds His kingdom. Now, if we spend all our time evangelizing and we don't see any results, while that can be discouraging, that's no reason to throw in the towel if Christ is the main priority. Or maybe we spend time evangelizing and we see results, but they just don't end up at this church. They end up somewhere else. Well, that's not ideal. That's not what we hope for. But the question is, and really the temptation is, will we be overcome with envy and jealousy when our efforts don't turn to our own benefit? That's the problem with relationships. That's the problem with horizontal human relationships. That's the problem with vertical man-to-God type relationships. We just aren't getting what we want. Well, let me give you, a, a for those who have been walking with the Lord for a while, let me give you another example that would be um, immediately uh, you'll be able to grasp. Bible reading. Why is it that your Bible reading is so up and down? And you say, well, who am I talking to? I'm talking to you. You. Okay. It's a common struggle. We all struggle with that, don't we? It's, it's so wonderful when we go through those seasons to where we're, we're in God's Word and it's almost as if the, the Word is jumping off the page and we can see immediate application and we can see, uh, uh, we can immediately grasp what's there and we feel like we've been fed just this, this rich spiritual meal. It's another thing whenever you've gone weeks and you read and it's just not there. Okay, it's just the experience is not Anything you would get up and give a testimony about. The reading's dry. You don't, you're not excited. It's not as lively as you wish that it would be. And so what do you do? Well, you keep reading. You keep reading. You keep going where the water is. You keep going where the food is. But again, this Jealousy can come in. We can be jealous over past experiences. We can be jealous over what we think other people are doing and what other people are experiencing. This can be applied in a million different ways. One thing is for sure, if you're going to be a faithful disciple, you're going to have to spend a good bit of time fighting your own pride and your own selfish ambition putting uh, self to death, putting your desires to death. This is the trap that we can fall into whenever we prioritize anything over our allegiance and obedience to Christ. You know, envy happens in all kinds of different ways. We can want our marriage to be different. We can want our kids to be different. We can want our parents to be different. We can want our bosses and our job and all these circumstances. Envy and jealousy is circumstantial. If we're going to be a faithful disciple, we're going to have to fight to put that to death. Now, the second point here really gives us the foundation for why we would do that. 
So John says in his response to his disciple, the disciples come back and say, no, John, you're both baptizing and now more people are going to Jesus and less people are going to you. What's happening here? John says, um, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Essentially, John says this, God gives to every man as he sovereignly chooses. Now, when we're thinking about that, we're thinking about that as it relates to gifts. We're also thinking about that as it relates to circumstance. You realize there is nothing that you have received that hasn't come to you through the loving, wise, sovereign hand of God. And so John, again, says, I know what I've been called to do. I know that I know what it is that the Lord has has given me. And the reason that I'm not jealous, the reason I'm not filled with envy. And again, it would be very easy for John to get there. There was a time when all men were flocking to John. All men wanted to come and see John. And that begins to fade. His recognition, his status is on a slow fade that will end in his death. He says God gives to every man sovereignly as he will. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Corinthians 4. This is a very simple, but it's also very powerful. This passage is the principle that we're going to get here. And this is the, this really is the principle. If we could get this principle that is the solution to, um, Christian lives, maybe I should say a devotion to Christ that's just up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down, hot and cold and all those things. Look what, look what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of a man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self, for I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God." And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou did not receive? Now, if thou didst not receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? Now, Paul takes this section in, in 1 Corinthians 4 and he really does lay out a very powerful 
principle for endurance in ministry and endurance in the Christian life. And so he starts out by saying that he is a steward. He has been called to be a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, when we're thinking about what it means to be a disciple, well, you're a steward as well. You're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a steward of, of, you've been entrusted with something. And you've been entrusted to something. So you've received the gospel. You've received the word. And, and, and as a disciple and a discipler, you've been entrusted with the responsibility to follow Christ and also help others on their walk with Christ. And here's the principle. If you're not careful... You'll just gloss over it as if it were common sense and move on. Verse 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. That a man be found faithful. Now, we said the first priority out of our passage is that we must be fighting selfish ambition and pride. We get to this section and what we see is John the Baptist is a man who has uh, cultivated a joy-filled humility. A joy-filled humility. And how did he do that? Well, number one, John realizes and John accepts the fact that God gives to every man sovereignly as he chooses. What does that mean? Well, that means that what God has called me to is not what God has called you to. And the gifting that God has given me is not the same gifting that He's given you. The abilities and opportunities that the Lord has given me, are, it's not the same that He's given you. But, if Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 means anything, it means that as it relates to the church, the pastor is not the only person who's been gifted. As a matter of fact, the, the picture there, and we'll go there in a little bit, is that each and every Christian has received a precise measurement of a gift that originated in the grace of Christ that you might edify the body. What does that mean? That means that, brothers and sisters, we've been given abilities and opportunities that are customized for you by Christ. Now that should, first of all, encourage you. But second off, you may think, Maybe you should have given that to somebody else. I don't know that I'm equipped to do that. I don't know that I've, I've done much with what I have. Here's the first point here in cultivating this joy-filled humility. Number one here. Your job, over and above anything else, is to be faithful. That's your job. First thing on your list, be faithful. Second thing on your list, be faithful. Third thing on your list, be faithful. You so say, what, what about, what about the results that come along with that? Well, let God take care of that. Okay. It is, it is, it is God that, that blesses and brings forth fruit to His glory. You're just a steward. Okay. You're a laborer. God's given you abilities. God's given you calling. God has given you opportunity. God has given you circumstance. And first and foremost on your mind ought to be how and where can I serve? 
I want to be faithful. Now, sometimes people get kind of paralyzed with this whole idea of gifting and spiritual gifts. And there's all kinds of tests out there to help you find your spiritual gift. And um, and most of them are pretty silly and they're really a, a, a Christianized version of just a personality test, which those things can have some merit, but they're not really all that helpful. Sometimes people misunderstand this idea of gifting as if God has given you one special gift and if you can just navel gaze long enough, you'll figure that out and balance will come to the universe whenever you, whenever you decide to start using it. Your gift is going to be directly tied to the opportunities that you have. The point of your gift is not to put you on a pedestal so everybody can say, I wish I was as gifted as that guy. The point of your gift is to build up the body. So here's the question. When we think about the giftings, the callings that we have. Number one, what opportunities do you have to serve? Number two, what areas of service do you notice that are missing? That you're thinking you wish someone would pick up the slag and fill in. That someone might just be you. You know, everyone can't do everything. And everyone's not focused on everything. I mean, the truth is, if it were my job, if, if, the, if, the, uh, if the card ministry that Sister Patsy does were my job, we'd save a lot of money on cards because I'd never send any. I don't think about that kind of stuff. Um, that's, that's not in my mind. But I'm thankful Sister Patsy does. I'm thankful that's, that, the, that the Lord has blessed her with that capacity and many of you with, with other things like that. What are the opportunities that you have? What are the abilities that you have? What are the interests that you have? And it's all surrounding this service to God's kingdom. Well, John the Baptist knew what his were. And so whenever he's faced with this question of why is it that Jesus is doing more than you? And why is it that the spotlight's on him and not on you? And John essentially says, a steward must be faithful. I'm doing my job. And my job's working. <laughs> Because Jesus is growing in fame. So, the overarching principle, they must be found faithful. Now, he continues on here, and he talks about some things that might knock us off of that center. Humility, that's what we're thinking about. If we're focused on being faithful, then humility is not going to be hyper-focused. Notice I said hyper-focused. Or ruled by, number one, out of the passage in 1 Corinthians 4, the judgment or the examination of other people. Look what Paul says. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Paul says it's a small thing that I would be under your examination. It's a small thing that you would that I would be scrutinized by you. That is not that Paul's not concerned with having a faithful witness to the world, but here Paul's talking about his ministry being under scrutiny, his ministry being under examination. He says I was called to be a steward, a steward should be faithful. I'm going to be focused on being faithful, and it's a small thing to me that you would that you would esteem me a good steward or not 
We're talking about the, the Proverbs 29-25. The fear of man is a snare. Right? There's a stumbling block. Always wondering, what are people thinking of me? What are people thinking about me as a fill in the blank? What do you think of me as a parent? What do you think of me as a pastor? What do you think of me as a preacher? What do you think of me as a... I don't know. Whatever else I might think is important. You know, that's a... That's just a symptom when we get consumed with what other people think about us. We can get roped into living for other people's approval. And we don't really think in these terms, but before long, we need other people's approval in order to keep going. Um, Ed Welch says this, that in the Christian life, we need to grow to the place that we can love people more and need people less. The less I need you, the more I can love you. If I need your approval in order to be comfortable around you and in order to, to move closer to you, uh, you're just going to have to flip the coin to figure out if that's going to happen. You know what this is like. Whenever you're living for somebody else's approval, even when they get it, you're not so sure that you have it. The tone might not just be just right. They may have missed what you really thought was emphasized and so forth and so on. Paul says, it's a small thing that I would be examined by you. Secondly, not only is it the judgment or the examination of others, again, you may think, how did we get here? Well, this is how we got here. John the Baptist has been baptizing and his disciple comes, disciples come to him and say, I thought you were supposed to be the big shot. What's the deal? He's getting more baptisms than you're getting. And John says, nothing can be given to a man unless it's given to him by God. Okay, So if we're going to trust in God's sovereignty in these things, then number one, we're not hyper-focused on what others think of us. Number two, we're not hyper-focused on self-examination and endlessly scrutinizing our present or past performance. It just doesn't work that way. We become paralyzed. So, I mean, just to give you... an an example, um, it's not that you shouldn't be trying to do the best that you can do at whatever it is that you're doing. It's that you shouldn't be spending tons of time trying to analyze after you've done the best that you could, could I have done better? You know what the answer is? Of course you could. Of course you could. Listen, I spend a, I spend a lot of time, um, and it's, that's, that's what I've, um, that's what I've been called to do, and you, you freed me up to have plenty of opportunity to do this. I, I spend a lot of time doing sermon prep through the week. Okay. By the time I get up and I'm ready to present the message, I think I've got a pretty good message. Okay. Uh, you may think that, if that sounds proud to you, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, if I thought it was bad, I wouldn't be, presenting it to you. But you know what's the case every single time? It could always be better. It could always be better. Somebody else could always preach it better. And so I could spend all of my time after my message thinking, ah, oh, you know what? I should have had my notes here and I should have said this and I can't believe I forgot that. 
this is just God's honest truth. You want to know what I think after I preach every sermon? Well, that was that. Time to get ready for Wednesday. That was that. Time to get ready for Sunday. You want to know why? Because it's it, the priority of a good steward is to be faithful. I've done what I've been called to do. Now it's time to move on to the next thing. Now yours may not be sermon prep, and it's probably not, but it is something else. And you can spend all your time wondering, what do people think about my performance, and what do I think about my performance? Or you can spend all your time active in trying to serve the Lord where He has you, with the gifts that He's given you, not in competition with whoever's around you. So, endless self-examination, endless wondering about what other people are thinking about me. But this is what humility does. This is where Paul's going here. Uh, humility focuses on, again, being faithful, and it rests in the reality that God's judgment is perfect in wisdom and in its timing. He says in verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time. You know, as parents, it's easy to get frustrated, isn't it? It's easy to think, I'm just a failure. And we think, okay, how old's your child? Four. <laughs> Judge nothing before it's time. It might not be the time to have the final word on your parenting success at the age of four. Um, right. So, judge nothing before it's time uh, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God and these things, brethren, I have, and, and really Paul's point in verse 6 is, is that you should not think about men, think of, of humans, humanity more than you ought. You shouldn't be puffing yourself up or looking to puff others up. And then here's the question, verse 7. Who makes one to differ from another? Again, that goes far beyond just a preaching gift. There are some people who, who do not handle pressure very well. And then there are some who can handle pressure very well. And some may say, oh, I wish I was more like them. Who makes one to differ from another? There are some who are very gifted in multitasking, and then there are some who aren't. Who makes one to differ from another? There are some who seem like they just, I mean, they just walk into opportunities where they're able to um, use their giftings to the glory of God. And it just seems so natural and it's, it's so visible. And so there's, there's room for jealousy at times. Who makes one to differ from another? There's some who are gifted and you can't understand why in the world would God give that gift to that person. It could have been so better used if it were given to somebody else. Usually that somebody else is me, right? Who makes one to differ from another? Resting in the reality that God judges and God judges rightly and it is God who gives gifts and it is God who blesses one to differ from another. And in God's good and sovereign Will, his wise choice, he has given you, believer, he has given you the abilities, the gifts, and the opportunities 
that He wants you to move into in order to further His kingdom. John's disciples say, why is He baptizing more than you? And essentially John says, because this is His kingdom, not mine. I've done my job. Now, John realizes that it's God's sovereignty that's at play, but he also realizes something else. Or maybe we should say he's responded in another way. Not only does he realize that God gives to every man as he chooses, but John is content with what he's been given. John is content with what he's been given. Now, we talked about this already, but John the Baptist is a very unique and influential figure. As we've already seen, he had a big following during Jesus' ministry. He preceded Jesus' ministry, but even after Christ comes on the scene, John continues to have a following. He has disciples. You get into Acts 18 and 19, and you find out that 20 years later, after John the Baptist has been murdered, he still has disciples. He still has people who are followers and who have received his baptism. So John's a big figure. He's not a small guy. And this is the third time in three chapters that we find reference whenever John is talking to his disciples or either the gospel writer John is talking about John the Baptist. This is the third time that we find reference to the fact that John the Baptist is not the Christ. You yourselves, verse 28, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before Him. Now, you may ask yourself, what's the big deal with that? I don't think I've ever had to remind any of you that I'm not the Christ. Hopefully you've never had any pastor that's had to remind you of that. Because there's been no confusion. But apparently, with John, there was a lot of confusion about that. He, 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 in the gospel writer, he, he emphasizes this fact that he came to bear witness of the light. He was not the light, but he did come to bear witness of the light. The scribes and the Pharisees come and ask John who he is, and he says, I'm not him. I'm not the Christ. John's disciple comes up and says, Why is Jesus bigger than you are right now? And he says, I've told you already, I'm not him. What's the point here? Well, the point is, John had a very specific calling. He knew what that calling was. He knew what the challenges were going to be. And he was content to stay within the confines of his calling and to serve the Lord to the best of his ability. He gives this imagery here in verse 29 that essentially says, I've been given my ministry and my ministry is doing what it should have done. Verse 29, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. What's he talking about? Well, John is picking up on imagery from the Old Testament. He knew, any Bible reader knew, that the Lord was going to come at some point and He was going to gather His people to Himself as His bride. John realizes that's what's happening right now. And he uses this imagery of a bridegroom and a bride 
And then a best man, the friend of the bride, the best man. And the imagery here, or the custom at that time and in that culture was that it was the best man's job to serve the bride and the groom and to make sure that they were honored and happy during all the wedding celebrations and ceremonies. The best man was, was, um, was given that responsibility. And so what John is saying here is that the bridegroom's happy and the bride is being gathered to him and his joy is my joy. It's, it's, it's my job to see that the bridegroom grows and increases. And that's exactly what's happening. And so as he is honored, my joy is fulfilled. Again, whose kingdom is John in? Who is it that John is sent to pave the way for? Well, it's Christ and, and he's doing just that. And if Christ is going to be above all, that means at some point, John and me and you are going to have to take a back seat. John says, I'm content to do that. I'm happy to do that. Because that's the way this was supposed to be. That's my role. Now, some have taken this bride, bridegroom, friend of the bride imagery and I think done some things with it that go way too far as far as the text is concerned. I do think that in doing that, we miss the whole point. And the point is this. Brothers and sisters, you yourself ought to see yourself as a friend of the bridegroom. In what way? In that your joy is made full in His joy. Your joy is made full in seeing that He is exalted and brought honor and that He is put in the spotlight. He's given you a role. He's given you a ministry. He's given you a task. And in fulfilling that task, He ought to be glorified and exalted. And what we find here in John, this whole attitude that He must increase and I must decrease, really is the attitude, it really is the cultivation of humility that we will find our greatest joy in. Our greatest joy is found in service to Christ by embracing this reality that it is not about me. It's not about me feeling successful. It's not about me being pleased primarily. But it's about me living a life and using the gifts and the callings and opportunities that I've been given to exalt Jesus Christ, to serve Him faithfully, and to contribute my part in His kingdom. Now, think about this for just a minute. John the Baptist is thrilled with the place that he's been given in the kingdom because John the Baptist realizes that what he's doing is that he's helping to usher in Daniel chapter 7, 13 through 14. Right? The Son of Man who's enthroned. He's given a kingdom that's an everlasting kingdom. He's given a dominion that is an everlasting dominion. And John says, I have played my part. I've done what the Lord has called me to do. I've been faithful to the task that the Lord has given me. But this joy-filled humility it must have a focus on 
We've got to please Christ. We've got to exalt Him. This is not the first time you'll hear me if you've been here often. Talk about 2 Corinthians 5.9. I use it a lot. I try to think about it a lot. Where Paul says, this is not in the KJV, but Paul says, I make it my aim to please Him. That's where John the Baptist could find his joy. That's where you can find your joy. What's the opposite? Well, the opposite is what we talked about earlier with selfish ambition and pride. The opposite is really a question of why haven't you made your aim to please me? A little rhyme that goes along with 2 Corinthians 5.9. You've got small children, you can have them memorize this and you ought to memorize it as well. 2 Corinthians 5.9, just two choices, just two choices on the shelf, pleasing Christ or pleasing self. Every decision you ever make in your life that's applicable. You've got two choices. You can either spend your life trying to please yourself or you can spend your life trying to please the Lord. John the Baptist says, my joy is full. The word fulfilled there means cram-packed full. Why? Because I see Christ flourishing and I see his ministry flourishing and I see his kingdom flourishing. And so to John, there was no greater joy or priority than to see Christ and his kingdom and his church flourish. What about you? What about you? Priorities of a faithful disciple. Putting pride and selfish ambition to death. Cultivating a joy-filled humility. And then number three, and we're going to have to move through this one fairly quickly, confirming God's testimony. Confirming God's testimony. That's 31 through 36. John says, He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly. He that speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard that he testified, and no man can receive his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. Now, that verse um, 33, uh, the, the wording of that is kind of weird, the way that it's translated anyway. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. Um, the way the NESB translates that, words that, I mean, you can see it's the same, but it's worded a little more uh, clearly. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. The point here is that the man who has received, the woman who has received the testimony of God has set this seal, that God's true. Now, what's the opposite? Well, the one who rejects this testimony has confirmed something else, and that is that God is a liar. Now this is where, and we could spend a whole sermon here, but we won't. This is where we see that it is so necessary for a disciple who is going to be a faithful disciple, who's going to be an enduring disciple, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. Part of your job as a disciple is to fight the flesh, Part of it is to grow into humility. 
And then another part of that is to continue to live a life that confirms the testimony of God. That is, I put my approval on it. I accept it. I receive it. I embrace it. I walk in it. Now, when we think about this from just a the way we think about religion as a whole, this really is what this particular section in Scripture, this really is what puts Christianity on a on a, on a pedestal, or maybe I should say puts Christianity in a, in a light of its own. This is where the Jews and the Muslims stumble and ultimately fall. It's a common thing to hear that whenever you think about the Jews and the Muslims, we all have the same Old Testament. And so it's led some to claim that all three religions have ultimately exalted and seek to serve the same God. Well, John, 30, John 3, 31 through 36 will not allow that conclusion. Because what John 3, 31 through 36 says this, if you reject the Son, you reject the Father also. Okay? If you reject the Son, then you're rejecting these things. And we're just going to have to bullet point this through the text. Verse 31. If you reject the Son, you're rejecting the One who came from above and who is above all. To receive the Son is to put your stamp of approval on that. That's to say, I embrace it, I receive it. To reject the Son is to reject the One who gives a first-hand eyewitness testimony about God. It's to reject the One whom God sent, who speaks God's Word. It's to reject the one who was given the Spirit without measure. It's to reject the one whom the Father loves. It's to reject the one whom the Father has given all things into His hands. Now we think about this, and first we have to think about it from a cognitive standpoint. I mean, you embrace it, you understand it, you receive it, but then you bring yourself under it. To believe Jesus, verse 33, he that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. To receive Jesus is really to approve the Father. It's to receive the Father. To reject Christ is to reject the Father. To call him a liar. So you may wonder, how does this fit into what we've been talking about? Well, if you receive everything that Christ has said about Himself, then it'll make sense that the pattern of your life will be a life that seeks to bring yourself into the light. Christ tells Nicodemus earlier to where we're fighting selfish ambition and pride. It's going to be a, it's going to be a life that seeks to be a good steward of what God has given us, what Christ has given us. And it's going to be a life that seeks to put Christ in the spotlight because there's no one who comes close to the Son. And so he ends this way. He that believeth on the Son, verse 36, hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And so the question that this asks really every reader and everyone in the room is what have you done with the Son of God? John wrote this gospel so that you might believe. And those who do not believe, in turn, reject. And those who reject are in a position to where the wrath of God is abiding on them. 
And so, the priorities of a faithful disciple, priorities of a faithful disciple, that is, we're going to be fighting against selfish ambition and pride. We're going to be seeking to cultivate joy-filled humility. And we are going to be approving, confirming that God is true. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we confess that while these, uh, these things are attractive to us that we've read, Lord, we would be, if we know you, we would be disciples who would fight our selfish ambition and pride. We would be disciples who would seek to cultivate a joy-filled humility that would um, not live for the approval of others, that would not be paralyzed by self-examination, but would trust in your judgment and your timing. We would be disciples who would approve your testimony by exalting Christ and living lives under his reign and rule to your glory. And yet we have to confess that, Father, we need your help. You've given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And yet we so easily go astray. And so, Father, would you bless us to be faithful? Would you bless us to stir one another up to faithfulness? And would you bless us to live lives out of a heart that would exalt Christ above all? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.